This is Space Time, Series 24, Episode 20. Coming up on Space Time, sea salt discovered on the red planet Mars, the Square Kilometre Array's Engineering Development Array, and over a thousand Starlink satellites now in orbit. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. European Space Agency has discovered sea salt high in the Martian atmosphere. The sea salt, also known as hydrogen chloride, was found embedded in dust lofted up from the red planet's surface. The findings were made by the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter spacecraft, which is jointly operated by ESA and the Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos. One of the major quests in Mars exploration is hunting for atmospheric gases that could be linked to biological and geological activity, as well as understanding how much water, essential for life as we know it, Mars once had. Not only will knowledge of Martian water reserves help scientists understand the red planet's history and how habitable it once was, but knowing where the water is today will also help future manned missions to Mars. Of course, water can be used for drinking but it can also be split up into its components, hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen can be used for breathing, and both the hydrogen and the oxygen, when combined, act as a rocket fuel. Two new results from ExoMars, reported in the journal Science Advances, are now unveiling an entirely new class of chemistry and providing further insights into seasonal changes and surface atmospheric conditions on Mars. The study's lead author, Kevin Olson from the University of Oxford, says the discovery of hydrogen chloride represents the first detection of a halogen gas in the atmosphere of Mars and presents a new chemical cycle to understand. Hydrogen chloride gas comprises a hydrogen and chlorine atom. Mars scientists have always been on the lookout for chlorine or sulfur-based gases because they're possible indicators of volcanic activity. But the nature of the hydrogen chloride observations, the fact that it was detected in very distant locations at the same time, and the lack of other gases that would be expected from volcanic activity, all points to a very different source. That is, the discovery suggests an entirely new surface-atmospheric interaction, one driven by dust seasons on Mars, which haven't been previously explored. In a process very similar to what's seen here on Earth, salts in the form of sodium chloride remnants of evaporated Martian oceans and embedded in the dusty surface of Mars are lifted high into the atmosphere by winds. Meanwhile, sunlight warms the atmosphere, causing dust together with water vapour released from the ice caps of Mars to rise. The salty dust then interacts with the atmospheric water vapour to release chlorine, which itself then reacts with molecules containing hydrogen to create hydrogen chloride. Further reactions could see the chlorine, or hydrochloric acid-rich dust, return to the surface, perhaps as perchlorates, a class of salt made from oxygen and chlorine. Either way, you need water vapor to free the chlorine, and you need the byproducts of water and hydrogen to form hydrogen chloride. Alton says water is critical to this chemistry. His team have also observed a correlation to the dust. They see more hydrogen chloride when dust activity ramps up, a process linked to seasonal heating of the Martian Southern Hemisphere. The authors first spotted the dust during that big global dust storm of 2018, the same one which killed off NASA's Mars Opportunity rover. The scientists observed the gas appear simultaneously in both northern and southern hemispheres. 
and they witnessed its surprising quick disappearance again at the end of the seasonal dusty period. They're now looking at data from the following dust season, and they're seeing hydrogen chloride levels rising again. As well as the new gases, the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbit is also refining science's understanding of how Mars lost its water, a process which is also linked to seasonal changes. Liquid water once flowed right across the surface of Mars. There's plenty of evidence to support this. Many examples of ancient dried-out river valleys and channels, there are dried-out river deltas leading into equally dried-out lakes, and what looks like a massive ocean bed which covered much of the Martian northern hemisphere. There are even signs of things that were once seashores and beaches. Today, the water that remains on Mars is frozen, locked up in the polar ice caps, or buried underground as permafrost. But Mars is still leaking water, in the form of hydrogen and oxygen escaping from the atmosphere. Understanding the interplay of both potential water-bearing reservoirs and their seasonal and long-term behaviour is key to understanding the evolution of the climate of Mars. This can be done through a study of water vapour and semi-heavy water, where one protium hydrogen atom is replaced by a deuterium hydrogen atom. That's a form of hydrogen with an additional neutron. The deuterium to hydrogen ratio acts like a chronometer, a powerful metric that tells scientists about the history of water on Mars and how water loss evolved over time. The ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter allows scientists to better understand and calibrate this chronometer, watch the water isotopologues as they rise through the atmosphere, and test for potential new reservoirs of water on Mars. The new measurements are revealing dramatic variability in the deuterium to hydrogen ratio with altitude and season as water rises from its original location. Interestingly, the data shows that once water is fully vaporized, it mostly displays a common large enrichment in semi-heavy water, and a deuterium to hydrogen ratio six times greater than Earth's across all reservoirs on Mars, confirming that large amounts of water have been lost over time. ExoMars data collected between April 2018 and April 2019 also showed three instances that accelerated water loss from the atmosphere. The global dust storm of 2018, a short but intense regional storm in January 2019, and water release from the South Polar ice cap during summer months linked to seasonal change. In fact, that plume of rising water vapour during the southern Martian summer would potentially inject water in the upper atmosphere on a seasonal and yearly basis. Future coordinated observations with other spacecraft, including NASA's MAVEN mission, will focus on the upper atmosphere, providing complementary insights into the evolution of water over the full Martian year. This is Space Time. Still to come, the Engineering Development Array, a key part of what will be the world's largest radio telescope, the Square Kilometre Array. And Gilmore Space signs yet another orbital launch contract, this one its first international customer. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. Work is starting to ramp up on the giant square kilometre array project to build what will be the world's largest radio telescope stretching across outback Western Australia and Southern Africa. Once fully operational, the square kilometre array will delve deeper into the universe with greater resolution than ever before. In fact, the telescope will be so powerful that new supercomputer technologies need to be developed just to handle all the data it will generate. 
Part of the project is a string of precursor radio telescopes designed to test different aspects of the Square Kilometre Arrays technology. Now here in Australia, these include ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, the Murchison Wide Field Array, and there's the Engineering Development Array Radio Telescope, which was designed and built by Curtin University. The Engineering Development Array was constructed in an extremely radio-quiet region of outback Western Australia, which is already home to the Murchison Wide Field Array Radio Observatory. And it shares some of Murchison's technologies, including the same design dipole antennas. Astronomers are using the array to detect very low-frequency radio recombination lines from the galactic centre region of the Milky Way. Low-frequency radio recombination lines provide important information on the physical properties of the cold neutral medium. The antennas that make up the Engineering Development Array have been set up to replicate the proposed antenna layout for the Square Kilometre Array low-field nodes. The first version, known as EDA-1, didn't incorporate conversion of signal straight to fibre, but instead uses 16 regular Murchison Widefield Array beamformers on the ground plane to transfer the signal data to a piece of equipment that acts like a receiver. The next stage, EDA-2, was built nearby. Like EDA-1, it's comprised of 256 new Murchison Widefield Array-style antennas with modified amplifiers all situated on a ground plane mesh. However, instead of using Murchison Widefoot Array beamformers, EDA-2 has 16 smart boxes which contain front-end modules that convert the coaxial cable radio frequency signal into fibre, suitable for sending to the control building. This happens through a field node distribution hub, a large shielded container on the edge of the ground plane that delivers power to the smart boxes and antenna and aggregates their data signals into a combined fibre for easy transport. This new system allows engineers and scientists to compare performances while still being a powerful telescope in its own right. One of the project's developers, Associate Professor Randall Waithe from the Curtin University node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, says the observations made possible thanks to the wide bandwidth of the Prototype Engineering Development Array are providing astronomers with a glimpse of what the SKA will ultimately be capable of once it's built. The Engineering Development Array, or EDA, is one of the telescope verification systems that we've built here at the, the observatory. We built the EDA as a reference and verification system for future SKA load developments. What's unusual about the EDA is that we've built it as a hybrid system. So it's partially analogue beamformers and partially digital downstream. And by Building it this way, we reduce the digital signal processing requirements of the system by a factor of 16. This is quite substantial in terms of the cost of computing, optical fibre and so on. So while not as fully flexible as the AAVS-1 system, it still retains the full sensitivity of the station and substantially reduces the, the downstream signal processing and computing costs. We built the EDA out of MWA dipoles because these are a known quantity, we know their sensitivity, we know they perform in the desert, and we wanted to see how they perform in the size and configuration of an SKA low station. The SKA low is, is a general purpose radio telescope. It has a few really important key science cases like studying the epoch of reionization. But like all radio telescopes, I imagine that some of the most exciting discoveries will actually come from things that we haven't imagined yet. That's Randall Waithe from the Curtin University node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. And this is Space Time. Still to come. 
Gilmore Space signs another orbital launch deal, this one the first with an international company. And SpaceX has now successfully launched a thousand Starlink satellites. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Gold Coast-based rocket company Gilmore Space has signed a new deal to provide U.S. company Momentus with launch services using Gilmore's new Ares rocket. Under the agreement, Momentus will gain access to low inclination and equatorial orbits using the Ares family of launch vehicles, while Gilmore gains access to Momentus's Vigoride water plasma propulsion technology, thereby allowing the Queensland-based company to expand its orbital flight domain for its Ares rockets. Gilmore Space has the option to book up to three Vigoride charter missions for orbital transfer services from Momentus over the 2023 to 2025 period, while Momentus will purchase a dedicated Ares orbital flight from an Australian launch facility. The Ares Hybrid Rocket Propulsion Launch Vehicle will undertake its maiden orbital flight next year, offering liftoff capabilities of up to 300 kilograms to low inclination and sun-synchronous low-Earth orbits. A more powerful variant, the Ares Heavy, should be commercially available in 2025. That'll have a payload capability of up to two tons. This is space time. Still to come, SpaceX successfully launches its fourth Starlink mission of the year, placing another 60 satellites into orbit and bringing the total to over a thousand spacecraft. And later in the science report, a new strain of COVID-19 now spreading around the world from Southern California. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. SpaceX has successfully launched its fourth Starlink mission of the year, placing another 60 satellites into orbit. The flight aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Space Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida was to have been the first of two SpaceX launches planned for the same day from the Cape. The second launch in the Falcon 9 double, slated for Pad 39A, was eventually postponed to allow additional time for pre-launch checks. The last time two launches took place on the same day in that part of the Cape was the Titan Gemini 12 and Atlas Agena missions, which launched just 99 minutes apart back on November 11, 1966. That mission included a series of spacewalks by the then-rookie astronaut Edwin Buzz Aldrin and a rendezvous to practice docking the Gemini 12 capsule with the Agena spacecraft. Despite some concerns about the weather at the recovery site, the Falcon 9 first stage returned safely to Earth, landing on the drone ship Of Course I Still Love You, which had been pre-positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. It was the fifth flight for the same Falcon 9 booster. It was also the 18th Starlink mission, which have now placed over 1,000 of the 240-kilogram high-speed internet broadband satellites into orbit, much to the chagrin of astronomers everywhere. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. There are warnings about a new strain of COVID-19 spreading around the world from Southern California. 
The new variant, called KAL-20C, was first found in Los Angeles County in July, before quickly spreading right across Southern California, and it now makes up nearly half of all COVID-19 cases there. A report in the Journal of the American Medical Association says scientists are still trying to determine if the new strain is more lethal than current COVID-19 variants or whether it could be resistant to any of the current vaccines. By the end of January, the new Southern California strain of COVID-19 had spread right across the United States and was also identified in Australia, Denmark, Israel, New Zealand, Singapore and the United Kingdom. Some 2.5 million people have now died from COVID-19 and another 111 million have been infected globally since the virus first emerged from Wuhan, China. A new study claims that transgender and gender-diverse adults are between three and six times more likely to be diagnosed as autistic compared to people whose gender identity corresponds to their sex assigned at birth. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Communications, is based on data from over 600,000 adults and confirms previous smaller-scale studies from clinics. Around 1.1% of the population are estimated to be on the autistic spectrum. Transgender and gender-diverse individuals were also twice as likely to indicate that they had received diagnoses of mental health conditions, especially depression. A new study claims that at least some of the blue stones used in Britain's 5,000-year-old Stonehenge monument on Salisbury Plain in southwest England were recycled from an even earlier monument in southwestern Wales. Archaeologists from University College London believe several of the iconic Neolithic standing circle stones had been used on an earlier stone circle named Warn Morn some 280 kilometres away. Warn Morn is Britain's third largest ancient monument. It operated for some 400 years and was the heart of a densely populated community until 5,000 years ago when all the people suddenly vanished. That's about the same time Stonehenge was built. Warn Morn has a diameter of 110 metres, again the same as the ditch enclosing Stonehenge. And like Stonehenge, Warn Morn is aligned to the summer solstice. A report in the journal Antiquity suggests that bluestones may have been moved by the builders of Stonehenge as this society migrated to a new area. The findings would explain why the monoliths of Stonehenge were transported so far when most similar standing circles of the time used locally sourced material. Well, they say blood is thicker than water, but that's not always true. A new study reported in the proceedings of the Royal Society B has found that if you got on better with your friends than with your siblings as a child, you're not alone. French researchers have found that kids are often better at cooperating with non-relatives than their siblings. The authors believe that getting on with people from other families helps expand social networks even if they're not friends, and that could lead to future benefits. And to be honest, really, who would want to cooperate with their sibling after they told on you to the oldies? An important iOS security update, safety warnings about a potentially deadly design issue with the iPhone 12, and Nikola Tesla's dream of sending electricity wireless through the air to power appliances and devices is now a reality. They're just some of the stories this week from the world of technology with Alex Sahara-Vroit from ITY.com. Yeah, this is uh, the latest 14.4 version of iOS and iPad OS. And if you've got an iPhone 6S or above or an iPad Air 2 or above, it's definitely worth 
updating because there are three critical vulnerabilities that Apple and others believe are being actively exploited and uh, targeted by hackers. The vulnerabilities target the kernel, the core of iOS and WebKit, which is the web browser engine behind Safari. So in theory, if you went to a web page that had the uh, malicious code, then the bad guys could run apps on your phone or do things to your phone to exfiltrate information and learn about you. And the iOS 14.4 closes those vulnerabilities. In fact, Apple has put something called Blast Door, which is something that stops the hackers from more easily being able to take advantage of vulnerabilities like iMessage and uh, other things like that. So if you've got an older device, definitely worth updating. I read somewhere as well that people with even older iPhones still stuck on iOS 12 were getting some sort of update too. So you know, Apple has given updates before to older devices that aren't receiving the latest versions of their updates. But uh, in this case, it's definitely important that you update your device straight away. There's also updates for the Apple TV and the Watch OS, and pretty soon we'll have an update for Mac OS as well. And there's other news with the iPhone 12 as well being a bit of a problem if you've got a pacemaker. Yeah, the iPhone 12 can be a real heart stopper of a product uh, because of the magnets in the back of it that uh, allow you to attach the Apple MagSafe charger that guarantees that the magnets are in the right spot to give you a 15-watt charge instead of a 7.5-watt charge through the normal QI or Qi charging. Uh, But these magnets are strong, and so Apple has put out a warning that you need to keep your iPhone 15 centimeters away from your body uh, or your chest area if you have a pacemaker. And I did read someone with a comment somewhere saying, oh, I keep my iPhone in my pocket and I've got a pacemaker. So clearly you don't want to be doing that. Uh, Normally iPhones don't have a lot of magnets inside of them, but the MagSafe ones, which is the latest ones, the iPhone 12 ones, they do for this particular configuration of being able to attack this MagSafe charger. And of course, the new iPads as well also have a lot of magnets inside so they can easily attach to the cases. And in fact, some people notice you could attach your iPad to like a fridge, for example, like a giant fridge magnet. But as with most things medical, it's important, you know, if it's got magnets inside, follow the directions. If you've got a pacemaker, you can still use an iPhone. You should still use, you know, wireless headphones, be they wired or Bluetooth, but just don't keep the iPhone itself close to your heart area. What does that do to your credit cards and things like that? Well, clearly it's not safe for credit cards, um, you know, but... Uh, a lot of the, uh, for example, the Apple Mag, the, the Apple MagSafe credit card holder, specifically has something inside of it that negates the magnetism from affecting your shielding. credit cards. Yeah, some sort of shielding. So don't keep your iPhone right next to your wallet, for example. Keep it in a different pocket. I mean, I haven't heard of people having their credit cards wiped by iPhones in recent times, but if you are going to do that with an iPhone 12, then you should use the approved MagSafe charger with the shielding. I wouldn't be using any different sort of case. And of course, if you are finding your card is wiped, then you need to contact the bank and get a new one. But at least, thankfully, we're no longer using audio cassettes and video cassettes or even CRT televisions where magnets could have a real issue. Being a radio person, and I've got some old reel-to-reel tapes, which which are of historical value. I've got to make sure I keep my iPhone 12 wall clear of those now as well. That's right. And if you have an old-fashioned spinning hard disk that you use to uh, store large amounts of video or photos, because it's cheaper than SSD, I mean, don't be putting your iPhone 12 on top of that drive, you know, in an absent-minded way, or it might start deleting the information off the drive because the spinning hard disks store information magnetically, whereas you know, flash memory and SSDs uh, do it through a completely different type of technology. So it's becoming less of an issue in the modern world, but not if you've got a pacemaker and not if you're not using one of the shielded MagSafe credit card attachments from Apple or from a uh, authorized third party. Tell me about Comsol. Tell me about the power banks and what's this virus problem we're hearing about? Sure. Well, Comsol is a brand of power banks sold 
in Officeworks in Australia. This is a bit like Office Max in the States or Staples in the States. Officeworks is our big version of that. And this console brand is, uh, I'm not sure if it's a house brand or not, but I think it's only sold in Officeworks. But um, they've got 20,000 milliamp hour USB-C laptop power banks. And also they've got another 20,000 milliamp hour for charging phones and, and uh, similar devices and two 10,000 milliamp hour ones. And these batteries with these larger capacities are very, very handy for charging your laptop on the go or keeping your mobile phone charged many times over. You don't have to worry about your phone running out of power anytime soon with these. But the problem, of course, is that if anything goes wrong with these sorts of batteries or if you get a nail, for example, and hammer a nail through the back of your phone or through one of these batteries. As you do. Lithium-ion, yes, as you don't do, obviously. But, you know, if you did that, they can explode. They can catch fire because the chemicals inside of lithium-ion batteries, when they are exposed to air or, or come into contact with each other, they can be flammable. Now, this was a huge problem in aircraft for a while there where uh, people carrying lithium batteries in their, in their luggage uh, wound up setting planes on fire. That's right. Well, we saw this with the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 where these phones would spontaneously catching fire because yes. there was a fault in the production of the battery. And now on a plane, I mean, not too many of us are flying at the moment, but you're not allowed to have lithium-ion batteries in the hold because if there's something in your luggage pierces the battery in some way, then it can catch fire. And of course, in the hold, you have lots of luggage and you know that can bring a plane down. There was talk that the MH370 Yes, keep it in uh, the plane. cabin with the people. Yeah, that's right. Well, but the thing is, at least if it's in the cabin, it's more easily able to be noticed. Uh, you can't chuck it out the ha- window. Come on. You can't. No, you can't. But they do have these boxes with sand inside that you can smoking phone into and put the fire out that oh, way because right. water doesn't seem to have much of an effect. And this is why also when you have been on planes, you always see the announcement that, look, if you do lose your phone down the side of the seat cushion, please don't bend your chair forwards or backwards because it could crack the phone in half. And of course, cracking the phone in half can cause the battery to get damaged. And there have been incidents on planes. So airlines are very, very careful about that. But these console batteries, branded batteries that are sold in Office works for the US equivalent of Staples or Office Max. I mean, they're just devices sitting in people's homes, which could set a home on fire and could spontaneously combust like the into the Samsung Note 7. So there is a recall, and uh, you will get your money back, or they'll give you a replacement that doesn't have these issues. And, uh, you know, you should double check to make sure that um, you're storing your batteries safely, that you don't mistreat them, mishandle them. And if you do have one of these console batteries, please take it back to Office Works and they'll let you know if it's the affected one or not. That raises all sorts of questions also about if you've got an old iPhone sitting in in a shed somewhere? Well, look, it's not a good idea to keep lithium-ion batteries in hot places. There was a story of the iPhone X two or three years ago, back of somebody's car when they went surfing, and it was apparently underneath some clothes, and apparently it spontaneously caught fire. Now, that didn't happen to very many other iPhones, otherwise you would all have heard about it. But if you leave your phone in the car in the summer and it's very hot, that's very, very bad for batteries. And I know that I have a Navman Yes device that talks about the fact that it uses a super capacitor inside as part of its battery system that can withstand these very high temperatures people leave their GPS devices in the car. So, um, yeah, if you've got a, a phone of any sort, don't leave it in a hot shed or in the hot car in the summertime especially um, because you either damage the battery or in rare circumstances it can explode and, and catch fire. And finally, we've achieved Nikola Tesla's dream of charging through the air 
no need for cables. Tell me about it. Yes, well, one of the big questions about that is is how you meter somebody and charge them for their power usage. But companies like Xiaomi, which makes iPhone clones, and Motorola, owned by Lenovo, come out with announcements that they have these wireless power charging systems. So just like your phone receives the internet over Wi-Fi, devices can send power through the air using millimeter wave technology and highly beamforming directional energy to the antennas inside these phones, which will then charge your battery. Now, Xiaomi's system only works at 5 watts, and that's a far cry from the 7.5 or 15 watt charging systems that we see in current use in Apple devices and even faster wireless charging in other devices. But the other devices require you to place your phone down on a pad. Just imagine if you had to place your phone or tablet onto the top of your Wi-Fi router if you wanted to get wireless internet. It'd be ridiculous. But we take this sort of thing for granted with wireless technology because there isn't anything better as yet. But Lenovo and, and Xiaomi aren't the first. Back in 2015, I interviewed somebody from a company called Ossia who had a technology called COTA, C-O-T-A, or Charge Over the Air. And they're basically talking about how you know this little box can sit there like your Wi-Fi router and it can just beam power to your phone, your remote controls, your games controllers, you know, desk lamps, any sort of devices that need low or lower amounts of energy. And of course, people are worried that sending it power through the air might yeah, somehow cook you. But, well, look, I don't know the full details. There are white papers and there is information about this. And in Motorola's demo, when somebody put their hand in front of the transmitter, it stopped the two phones, which were within one meter of the transmitter from charging. So there's a lot of hype about this. Technology has been in development for years. There was a huge expectation that in 2018, Apple would launch this technology with another company called Energis that also has this technology, but it never happened. And hopefully this is the decade when we finally will see wireless power become as ubiquitous as Wi-Fi. And it will mean thinner, lighter, and smaller devices your battery could be one-tenth of the size that it is now if you could reliably get a lot of power from the home you were in, the office, the hotel, even just walking down the street. But of course, companies like to meter for power. And at the moment, you know, these claims from Xiaomi, for example, that uh, wireless technology is no longer science fiction, but a science fact. It's true, but it could still be a decade before it's properly commercialized. That's Alex Zaharov-Royt from ITY.com. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, 
through our SpaceTime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash SpaceTime with Stuart Gary. And SpaceTime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to SpaceTime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.